Hi, welcome to the Proterra Connect podcast. I'm your host, Walid Siraj. In today's episode, we're joined by Stephen Janssen. Stephen is the head of IT strategic partnerships at Shell, where he helps organizations drive technology-enabled change through strategy development, hands-on delivery, and deep business change management. Stephen comes from a background of simplicity, but making it very clear that simplicity for him does not conform to being ordinary. He's done various tenures for Shell in countries such as Singapore, India, the United States, and Netherlands. He sat down to talk about his story, what drives him every single day, and his ambition for the future. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Hi, Stephen. Good morning. Thanks a lot for uh, joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Walid. Pleasure having you here. Um, so I'm just going to dive straight deep um, into what this podcast is really about, and that is really about the authentic interactions that we have with people. Um, it's trying to understand the human-centric side of people. Mm. Um, and one of the most interesting things which I like is um, the different ways in people describe themselves. Right. Um, so my first question for you really is, who is Stephen? Yeah. <laughs> That's a broad question, eh? Yeah. I think in the end, I'm just a pretty normal Dutch guy who yeah, likes to get by in life, get uh-huh. new experiences, learn, get, stay excited, keep excited, and generally help people and help to make the world a better, nicer place. Okay. Um, so I think that's that would be a broad description of myself. I can, of course explain what I do um, for a living and what uh, I do from nine to five and, uh, and in the weekends, etc. But I think generally that that's me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Someone that likes to help people. Yeah. Also. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's, let me take you back a few years. Um, let's start with, because I really think um, the core of our being um, plays a big role in who we are today. Mm-hmm. And I want to take you back to kind of your childhood almost. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about where you were raised, uh, what your family was like, your parents, so I I was born in a town called Alkmaar, yep. which is about 50 kilometers north of Amsterdam. Um, grew up in a very, I wouldn't say protected, but a, a pretty protected environment. Um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um, my dad was working at uh, a cookie factory in uh, in Zaandam. Okay. Um, and yeah, I think I had a pretty great childhood. Um, focused on learning, experiencing Alkmaar, the city. My parents gave me a lot a lot of freedom, Okay, uh, which is still something we're sometimes debating about, was it the right thing to do or not? But I I just did my own thing uh, when I was four, five, six, and, and beyond. And same at school, I, I just got by. I think in the end, teachers saw, okay, this guy can maybe do a bit more, so let's let him do his thing and give him stuff to do, and uh, we'll, we'll just see. And... I think that that amount of freedom has definitely shaped me that I I I just improvise. I don't necessarily follow the rules. I, I okay. go for what I think is uh, is the right thing to do and the best approach to do it by. And um, yeah, I think that's been quite a, quite a formative part of uh, my identity for sure. Yeah. And when you say freedom, um, what did you use that freedom for? So what was it that you did? I think in my childhood was very much about learning, exploring. I'm an extremely curious person, so I yeah. 
I used to collect a bunch of stuff like uh, stones and okay. uh, plants and stamps and well, a million billion things. I used to read a lot, so I used a lot of my freedom to walk up and in the library, get some new books, read yeah. some new stuff, drop by the the stamp shop on the way down, look for some new new stuff to uh, to put in my collection, and just walk around the street and see what's going on mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah, it's mostly mostly that. Okay, um, and what was the dream of young Stephen? Um, where did he think he was going to be? Interestingly enough, the I think uh, like all kids, you have phases what you want to be and yeah. where you want to go to. But the the example I remember most is that I wanted to be a lumberjack, somebody who just works in the forest, okay, with the animals and uh, free spirit. And um, I think it was got that from a, a Woody Woodpecker cartoon I saw and I, I, I yeah I saw this this lumberjack guy and I, I kind of liked his yeah. uh, his attitude and, and what he did and uh, yeah that, that sort of stuck um, so I never really had these ambitions like I want to be a doctor or I want to be a banker or a rich guy but mostly somebody who yeah enjoys what he does and I think the process like a lumberjack it's mostly about a process and not yeah. about an end result is uh yeah used to be quite quite appealing to me yeah. okay um and then what did you end up studying then um when you went to university or high school let's say what direction did you kind of pick yeah of course of course i because i had such a broad area of interest and passions and hobbies i had no idea what to choose because choosing is is quite scary yeah because if you go for something it also means that you have to say no to a lot of other things yeah um so I, I I honestly didn't know and I looked for guidance from people and of course the normal thing is well if you want to be successful study something that yeah. uh, that sets you up for success yeah um, so I went for a, a technical study initially electrotechnic electrical engineering okay and um, I had no idea what it is and uh, I just thought okay well let's let's give it a try and go for it yeah um Quite clearly, in the first year, it was maybe already in the first week. It was it was obvious. Electrical engineering was not me. I could not identify with some of the things that were going on. Mm-hmm. Did I have a, a real passion as some of the my fellow students had? Absolutely not. Um, so I think after six months already, I decided, okay, maybe I need to make a change, and um, I went to study industrial engineering and management. Okay. Uh, which was both in uh, in Twente, by the way, yeah. in uh, Enschede. And that was okay. Um, quite enjoyed it. Um, lots of variety, good things to do. But at the same time, I felt there was still something a bit missing, some intellectual challenge. And at the university, they also offered a philosophy, philosophy course, yeah. philosophy of science and technology. And I thought, well, why not do that as well? Okay. And um, yeah, that's what I ended up doing I, in in the end i didn't finish my in, uh, philosophy of science i okay. sort of stalled at the at the final hurdle of the uh, the thesis but i did learn quite a lot from it and then after i finished my industrial engineering degree um, i was out of money and essentially i had to get to to work and uh, yeah so i had to leave university but uh, I, I did really enjoy that time of learning experiencing and and big, big freedom yeah, it's interesting because in a way, um, 
in order to complete your industrial engineering degree, I think you you knew that you had to spark that creative brain, that curious Stephen. Mm-hmm. So philosophy for you was not so much about a degree, it didn't matter, but it was that it sparked that curious side of yours, right? Yeah, to get it, you going in industrial engineering in many ways. It, 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 indeed, it, so it helped me to get through maybe some of the boring stuff yeah. because I had this distraction of yeah, talking and thinking about how people perceive something very abstract like technological development and how uh, um, technology provides meaning to people's lives and also... Uh, maybe a threat in some ways, and I think that yeah, multifaceted piece that is technology makes it yeah made it very interesting, and it also keeps my my brain active and, yeah. and motivated to yeah get on with the real stuff that would essentially pay my bills yeah. in the end of the day. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay, so you graduate then. Time to pay your bills because you're out of money now. Yep. So what's next? Well, just like. <laughs> Choosing a study, uh, of course, I had no idea where to work because choosing something means choosing. Yeah. Also, not to do, not to work somewhere. And I was very pragmatic back then. I thought, okay, I I want to work somewhere where I get broad exposure. I love traveling, so somewhere where I have like an, an international angle. And um, yeah, what I actually did didn't really matter because I I was also I also understood that. A lot of this, the the starter jobs after you graduate from university is about doing Excel, making PowerPoint slides, yeah. and essentially learning. So I, I was not too fussed where where I ended up, but mostly around okay, what are some of my prospects uh, that really drive my ambitions and my curiosities? And I looked at multinationals f- just for that reason, mm-hmm. and I think I had the most click with uh, with Shell. Um, because the people that I that, that interviewed me that I inter- interacted with were international. Um, we had some great conversations. Uh, I did my internship in Malaysia, where of course Shell is based as well. Yeah. And in the end, it was quite a natural, uh, a natural fit. Um, and I actually got my job with Shell before I finished my thesis, which was very helpful because it motivated yeah. me to finish actually, the actually finish yeah. the bloody thing. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm in many ways the same. Um, I only did a bachelor's degree, um, and that too was the sake of just appealing to society that he is capable of um, following some elements of guidance and rules. Mm-hmm. But So I can completely understand um, this uh, lack of needing formal education or whatsoever. I actually think education is more important now or when you're 15, 20 years into your career if you do an MBA, which I know you did as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be, and I, I'm curious to hear your perspective on that, which we'll get to, because I'm sure that that is a different experience from what your first one would have been. It was, yeah. Um, but before that, so Shell, um, you started in the Netherlands as an IT business analyst, was it? Correct, yep. So why IT, why business analyst, or okay, that was just what was offered? Shell is something called the graduate program. Yeah. And... Essentially, when you start, they, they look at your profile and they think, okay, where where would this person be a best fit? And I think when they looked at my profile, I was a bit of everything and a bit of nothing okay. at the same time. So I think IT was a, was a good fit then because IT is a bit like that. Yeah. So, and of course, I didn't really mind. So I said, okay, let's give it a give it a go. And um, 
yeah, I was I was uh, I I started in a role mostly because um, I had a good click with the uh, with the management team there, and also of course in that graduate program you rotate a couple of times. So in the end, it doesn't really matter where you start. It's about learning the company, learning how things work, and then just making something out of it. Okay. So um, you join as an IT analyst. And I know that in between there were actually quite a few places you moved within as well, right? The first one being Singapore. Correct. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit actually about the first few years in the Netherlands. Yeah. Uh, what was it like entering work life, um, working at Shell, and then also this move, which was which actually came pretty quickly as well, right, to Singapore? Yes, it was after three years indeed. I think working life was actually not as bad as I thought it would be. Okay. I, I was pretty scared that my life after university would be pretty much over. But actually, it's just not like that. Uh, of course, you're you're making money, which is uh, which great. Is, which is great because yeah. it allows you to do things that I couldn't be I couldn't do before. And actually, working life was pretty interesting. So in uh, in the company, there's literally thousands of interesting people walking around that you have free access to, and you're working on. So I worked for the HR department. I did IT for HR, and I got to work on some pretty interesting parts around. Well, not only implementing big new systems, but then also getting rid of the old stuff. Yeah, and which I'm sure you're still doing to this day. For, <laughs> for sure, but but I think part of the interesting thing is that of, in IT, a lot of it is about how do we do new things. Yeah, but when you're working, change is sort of your big enemy. So, <laughs> so moving stuff out and and saying, well, because we've implemented something, it means that we're going to discontinue other things. Is actually a very tricky, a tricky part, and and that's what I learned in those first days. Is around well, can you articulate this need to get rid of stuff? Can you visualize what it means that you just impl implemented something for a very large sum of money, and then you're not getting full value out of it because you haven't adapted your your ways of working yet? Yeah. Uh, so that was that was quite key in that first uh, that first assignment, and I moved a bit into strategy as well, so developing. Uh, a strategy of okay, where do we want to go to in in this department from an IT perspective? What do we do, and what do we don't do? Um, my second role was then in uh, more of a project where we decided to um, outsource a number of our application management or support activities. So we essentially um, engage with external vendors to say, well, we've got a package of activities that we used to do ourselves, but we now uh, yep. want to ask you to do it. And I got involved with dealing with suppliers, negotiating, and also yeah, really articulating what it is you want somebody else to do, uh, and against what price. That was, uh, yeah, that was a, a, a very good learning experience as well. And of course, in those projects, you work with highly experienced people. Mm -hmm. I was just a newbie, but then you're working with project managers or consultants or others with 20, 30 years of experience. Yeah. And yeah, just the fact that you can learn from those folks is, uh, is really great. Yeah. Um, and then I think after two and a half or so years, um, my partner, uh, she, she, she also worked for Shell and she, she managed to get a job in Singapore. Okay. And then I had a choice, and my choice was, well, do I break up my relationship or do, do I join her? And, I, and did you meet her at Shell as well? 
Yeah, through like a social network. There's yeah. a, there's, there used to be a big, uh, a big social community for, especially for young graduates who, mm-hmm. you know, are sort of in the same boat. And uh, yeah, there's, there's quite naturally you interact with yeah. uh, with those folks quite a lot. Um, but yeah, then she, she was about to move to Singapore, so I, I had to have a very difficult conversation with my boss. And essentially, I summarized it by saying, "Look, I love my." partner more than I love you so I'm going <laughs> and yeah if you want me to stay you better help me get me a job yeah and um, well in the end we, we we made it work but it was actually something outside of of IT okay. um, so I moved into uh, to trading so really okay. hardcore oil trading not really deliberately but it was something that was there it was an opportunity yeah. and I thought well you know, what do I have to lose? So let's yeah. apply, see what it's like, and uh, and just jump in. So I uh, I managed to get s- selected, which was, of course, a great compliment because I yeah. didn't really have the formal experience, no. etc. But I think people saw something in me with regards to yeah, my attitude, the ability to to think opportunity-wise and opportunistically. And I said, okay, let's uh, let's go. Yeah. So then we moved to uh, to Singapore, and. Uh, after a year, I had more or less the same experience as I had with electrical engineering. That trading was not just not my my thing. It was just not my. Uh, there was no real fit with my and personality. What, what did it really entail? Trading. What What was it that you did? So, in in that initial role, I was in a, a sort of a development program to become like a, a trader. trader. So, yeah. you, you support traders in the operations of uh, of cargoes. So, if you mm-hmm. buy a cargo of crude oil that needs to go into a refinery. Of course, you need to ship it. You need to make sure you've got contracts arranged. You've got uh, um, handshakes with uh, the terminal that needs to load the yeah. oil, but also the refinery that needs to receive it. Yeah. And there's a lot of a lot uh, of process, a, lo- a lot of activities yeah. that, that that go on about it. Yeah. So I uh, I facilitated those uh, those activities for essentially a trading business in uh, Southeast Asia and Australia. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, of course, in 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 a context of uh, um, Singapore, it, it's of course a very magical place where you're sort of outside of your outside of your yeah. your comfort zone, outside of your home. So a lot of new experiences and and things. Um, so I learned a lot, but in the end, I, I realized by looking at sort of the the big shot traders that. Yeah, they had something that I didn't have. And I also realized that I had some things that they didn't have. And in the end, I decided, okay, um, maybe IT was not so bad. So <laughs> so, so when it was time to to, to sort of leave Singapore, I, I thought, okay, maybe move back to IT. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, see what we can uh, can do there. Okay. Yeah. So and, yeah. and then from Singapore back to the Netherlands, was it? Yeah, I, I, I did one IT role in Singapore for about... Year, year and a half or so, yeah. and then um, and then it was time to go back to the Netherlands, and then okay. I uh, I made a move to something very different again, which is uh, capital projects. So that's the large scale oil and gas projects that we that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, highly fascinating place. Uh, I I think Discovery Channel has a thing called mega projects or something. These shows where you have to build something enormously big, yeah, and in very remote locations uh, a lot of uncertainty and really yeah you need to think on your feet to to be able to 
uh, to pull some of those things off. Highly oh. exciting place. And yeah, again, I think I was lucky to, to be offered uh, a position in in that space as the uh, as an IT manager mm-hmm. to uh, essentially provide these capital projects with information management capabilities and the systems to to drive those projects. Yeah. So um, yeah, that was great, and I I foc- those projects were focused on our integrated gas business, and of course because I was in the trading business, I I, I knew the business side very well. I yeah. I, I knew in and out what was <coughs> going on what you need to do to be successful from yeah. a business perspective. And that knowledge proved to be really crucial in the rest of my IT career to yeah. to really articulate why we're doing certain things and why certain technical decisions may have an impact left or right. Interesting. Um, so back to the Netherlands now, also kind of a different role, right? But more going towards IT again. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in a way you figured out that IT was more where you belong, but... Again, I see this connecting back to your curious mind of still trying new things like Singapore. Um, and then I saw also that you spent some time in India as Correct. well. yeah. And US as well, Houston. Yeah, Houston was a couple of weeks. In, okay. It was intended to be like um, a four-year gig, three, four-year gig. Yeah. But because of COVID, that went horribly, ah, okay. uh, horribly wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'll spare you the details, but uh, but I did spend a year in India okay. as part of my my capital projects role. Mm-hmm. So I, I sat with uh, with an engineering team that was uh, yeah, driving a number of our large scale capital projects from there. Yeah, um, doing that role from the Hague did not make sense because no. of time zone and just yeah. practical just physical there with the team physical distance. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I was lucky enough to 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 be in Bangalore for a year, which was again. A fantastic and experience. did you move there with your girlfriend? No, well, let's say my relationship uh, uh, finished when I uh, wow. um, just just before I left Singapore. Okay, just after, so so things uh, things went another way. Yeah. Um, so Bangalore, I was essentially on my own. Okay. Uh, yeah, again, free man. Yeah. Bought a motorbike, <laughs> explored India, and uh, and I had just a fantastic year. Yeah, it must have been the time of your life. Yeah. Um, so now I want to go back to that. In 2019, you did a master's again, an executive MBA. Correct. Uh, why did you decide in 2019 to do that? And what was, how different was that from the first time you went studying? Yeah, I think the trigger for me to, to study for an MBA was essentially that I was looking for, again, that enrichment that, uh, that, that, that I need to keep, uh, to keep my mind going and my mind active. And I thought, okay, let's go, let's go back to academics because I had a good, Good memories of uh, of that time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really going in depth, um, meeting new people, getting exposure to new ideas, etc. So that was what appealed me in um, going back to university. And of course, when you're in an executive MBA, I think you, you get more or less the same topics that I did 20 years before. Yeah. But of course, updated for. The, the latest insights, but also with 15 years of work experience. Yeah, and there were so many things that I thought, oh, had I known this back, 15 years back ago. Then, <laughs> 15 yeah. years ago. So um, it was just very good that I that I was able to yeah, match my my work experience and some of the very practical things I picked up yeah. during that time to relate it to well, business decisions and and the theory and strategy, etc. 
Okay. Um, still at Shell, 15 years uh, later. Yeah. So tell us, what is your current role um, in layman terms? What is it that you do? Why do you wake up every morning? Yeah. And what is the impact you're making? Yeah. So I'm in my latest role since May. So mm-hmm. a couple of months old. But currently I'm the contract owner for, for SAP. Okay. Yeah. I essentially look after all our commercial engagements and the overall relationship with the software company SAP, which plays, of course, a big a big role yeah. in uh, yeah, our, our IT setup and, of course, also how we, we run our operational processes. Mm-hmm. So a big part of my day is about working with the company SAP to, um, yeah, to look for how can we optimize the delivery of... Uh, of the services and products that we get. How can we look at um, building a joint strategy around, say, where do we see the future? Um, you may know that uh, ERP systems, of course, have life cycles. Yeah. And we're now at the, uh, at the forefront of uh, getting into that, that latest life cycle of, yeah. our, of our SAP products. And those projects are, are big, yeah. challenging, exciting. And if you want to have... a, a good likelihood of success, you need to be able to to work very closely with with your key vendors and partners around, mm-hmm. okay, how do we drive this? What can we learn from other companies? Yeah. Uh, what experiences can we leverage? So a lot of it is around yeah, driving that relationship, but also operationally looking at, well, what goes well? Sometimes we have uh, things that uh, sort of need support to to iron out. So yeah. I also do a bit of that, but it's it, it's generally around the question around how do we drive say, a, uh, the partnership in, in the right direction mm-hmm. and how can we leverage uh, to mutual benefits the, uh, say, say the engagements that we have. Yeah, and of course uh, driving partnerships in the right direction, of course, before that comes choosing the right partners as well. Mm-hmm. So how do you, what does that look like? What is a good partner to you and how do you decide this is the person, this is the company I'm going to trust with, like you said, projects which are crucial to the success? Yeah, of, of course, our relationship with SAP is, is decades old. We've yeah. been one of, the, uh, one of the first customers of the company. And, and, of course, the fact that you have so much history builds trust, it builds understanding. Uh, and, and I think those are crucial components to a good partnership. You need to be able to so understand where somebody com- is coming from Mm-hmm. And then also around how do you see the future and how do you want to develop it? And I yep. think that that ability to yeah to mutually think along and 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 work towards an outcome is is crucial. In yep. other places where you're driving novelty, for example, yeah, th- there may be other considerations like well, what type of functionality do we do we get? But also around yeah, what is this company about? I think one of the challenges that you see with smaller companies is that they don't often have the scale that a company yeah. like Shell has. Yeah. And everything we do at Shell is always mega. Yeah. It's always very large in size. It's always multi, uh, multi-country, multi-dimensional, highly complex. So any partner that you work with typically has to have some form of scale. Yeah. Um, or they a strong promise that they that they are going to get that scale in mm-hmm. in the foreseeable future. Yeah, interesting. Um, and of course, you're also heavily involved in all of this. Essentially, what we call digital transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think digital transformation has also been in recent years just a word we've been throwing around without really understanding what it is that we're trying to achieve. Um, what is digital transformation to you? 
I think digital transformation to me is not a new concept. It's essentially something that we've been driving for many, many years. Yeah. Um, I think what has changed over the last couple of years is that there's been a much bigger appetite from people outside of the IT community to actually take ownership of some of those elements and to drive things. So yeah. I think the biggest change that digital transformation in its current form has brought is that it's become much more multidisciplinary. Um, IT, of course, has also commoditized a lot. It's become yeah. simpler to understand. Everybody has iPhones. Everybody has the latest gadgets at home. So I think people are much more familiar with uh, sort of what IT means beyond the laptops, the Wi-Fi, yeah. and, and the, system, the systems that you work on in on a daily basis. So I think people have become better at getting to grips with something abstract as... Uh, as a concept around how do we drive process innovation through uh, through technology, um, so I think part of that has been has been a great change. I think another component is the the stronger focus on data. I think um, where before there was a big emphasis on hard technology yep. and systems, etc., but now actually, just like say, all the big Silicon Valley players. Data is, is the crucial asset. It is the new oil, ironically, to uh, say to someone that so works. So that that yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I think that, that greater emphasis on data and what can we actually do with that data to become a better performing business has also been a further accelerator of that whole transformation journey and also the need and the understanding that you have to they do things differently yep. if you want to monetize from uh, from from these aspects and these assets that you may already have yeah but you're not fully utilizing yeah um and of course uh, like you say data has become a core theme um both let's say collecting data but also using that data mm -hmm. um we always see that technology is changing every minute um we hear words of blockchain and ai and machine learning which are many times just thrown as buzzwords to us but I've also understood that for an industry um, and a company like Shell, these new technologies can be essential for, for the future. Um, what is the, let's say, progress on that in terms of new technologies? Is it already being implemented or are we still far away from this? These specific, uh, we, have, we have existing use cases for these technologies since quite a while. Okay. Um, I think it's mostly around what scale are you asking that question about and how far are we leveraging? Yeah. I think um, some technologies that, that are particularly novel may have use cases that are initially quite small yeah. uh, and quite niche, uh, but then it's around how do you scale and how do you further optimize. But in, um, yeah, for example, the, uh, the operational asset maintenance and production space, uh, artificial intelligence that yeah. helps us to predict... Um, rather than guess, guess yeah. <laughs> when you have to do maintenance, yeah. is, uh, is becoming bread and butter in the industry. And I think oil and gas as an industry has moved quite, quite quickly over the last couple of years. I think historically they've been a bit laggards in, yeah. in this space, um, but triggered by well a number of crises, but also other drivers. I think... Uh, uh, oil and gas as an industry has been much more adaptive and welcoming new technologies as accelerators for growth. Yeah. Um, and of course, there's now this energy transition taking place. Mm. Um, first, 
if you can explain to us what is this energy transition that is taking place and how a company like Shell, I don't want to use the word survive, I would like to use the word adapt to this change. I think Shell likes to call it thriving okay. uh, because we actually do see a bright future for for us in say, that new regime. Yeah. I think energy transition is a recognition that we as a society need to go green and we need to tackle the climate challenges that we have. But at the same time, we need to realize that we can't do that overnight. Um, we can't just flip the switch and go solar. No. I think the well, what we see right now in say the, the global space that's happening and the, the gas crisis that's currently at play in, uh, in Europe show that an easy tr transition there's not. Um, so that transition is a very careful process that companies like, like Shell are undertaking, but you see very deliberate steps from um, yeah, moving towards uh, uh, electrifying yep. our business. It, moves, it, it means moving closer to our customers. It also means organizing our needs around organizing our, our, our business around the needs of customers, yep. which in the end is not fuel or lubricants, etc. People are looking for energy solutions. Yeah. And um, for I think for, for us, that, that is a big part of that energy transition. So it means shifting our portfolio, but it also means shifting the way we work and the way we think about um, yeah, our, our daily activities from say, a commodity business into like a customer-centric organization that drives solutions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and like you said, this is not something that is done overnight. This is something that takes years, maybe even decades. Um, of course, we have to approach it with speed. Um, but there are always, let's say, the pessimists and the blockers. Um, and I also want to take this more towards enterprise innovation, like you said, applying these new technologies. What do you think are the blockers that prevent us from moving in speed quickly towards places like this? Is it just people who don't understand the technology or they're used to doing things in a certain way or what is it, do you think? In light of energy transition? Energy transition and enterprise innovation in general. Yeah, I think, I think it's not only people, but it's also the, the, the constructs that we as a society have created. Yeah. So we've, we've We've given people jobs and people, of course, are, are being expected to do the job in the right way. Yeah. And sometimes, especially in the early days, a novel technology may, may actually be distracting because it may... That's true. You need to incubate it. You need to mature a, a technology, which means it takes a bit of time, just like, like children have a need to grow up. Yeah. Uh, so do technologies. And yeah... The, you have to acknowledge that in the beginning, you have to invest a bit more in uh, in, in that nurture phase. Yeah. And, uh, I think that that is something that, yeah, we need to understand. You can't have, say, the outcome without getting the process. Similarly, like you, you can't be all green and at the same time want to go to Hawaii for a holiday. Yeah, why are you flying in a plane? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I think that's also a good segue into the next question, which is really about how outsiders view this industry f um, for us. Because when you say, okay, I work for Shell, um, yeah, it's a little bit different. But many people, let's say the wokes, um, will be like, ah, you're working for this and that. Um, what do you think 
is a common misconception or misconceptions about um, a company like Shell or this industry that people seem to have, which is not actually true. Yeah, I think first of all, the, the perception of say, an energy company varies strongly across yeah. where you are in the world. Yeah. I think in, um, for example, in India, it's mu much more about the ability to supply energy yeah. and power. In, low, in the lowest prices. Uh, yeah, often because people yeah. need to switch from, well, yeah. people are getting richer in India, for example, and they're moving from doing the laundry by hand at the river yeah. to buying a washing machine. But yeah. the washing machine needs electricity, needs power, yeah. it needs power. And um, I think one, one of the things I learned during my international uh, experiences at Shell is that, yeah, you, you can't say no to these people that are not allowed to, to, to buy a washing machine. Yeah. Um, so, so the dilemmas are, are just very big. And I think, I think part of the things is it's, it's not that simple. Yeah. And um, I think in Europe, uh, where we're at the avant-garde of energy transition thinking and the need to go green, etc. cetera. Yeah. Um, that's great. Uh, but in other places, the world looks very different. Yeah. And, and it's something that you have to keep realizing. And same, same goes the other way. Um, you also can't just say, well, uh, you're in country X, uh, the perception is this, so let's yeah. just go for it. Yeah. Um, I think as a company, we have a very strong belief in energy transition and the way we, we, we need to drive it yeah. in order to make a societal impact. Yeah. Um, so you also need to, to be firm to, to your own beliefs as a company that well, this is the way we're driving it and this is how we um, are going to make that impact. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's a great answer because um, it's very easy for us to sit in a country like the Netherlands. And I say that because I come from, from Pakistan um, where for people, energy is powering their existence in many ways. And for us, um, when we see the price of petrol has gone up 5% or 3%, that has a huge impact on how your income and your salary is distributed across the rest of your expenses. Mm -hmm. So it comes from this position of, I want to say, almost privilege for us to really point fingers and say, hey, you're still drilling oil, you're still doing this and that, and um, why is this change not happening quicker. Um, I want to move to my favorite question, which I always ask people, mm. um, because I think it was also really interesting how you started. You have this theme of when you make a decision, it is also not just about the decision you make, but also the decisions you are not making, which is about if I studied this, this are things which I cannot study. Mm. And I saw this even when later in your career, it's like, okay, us getting rid of this software also means these are the softwares that we can't have. Um, but the, the fundamental question here is, and it lies behind this idea, that when we figure out something which doesn't feel like work to us, but it feels like work to everyone else around us. So if I call you at two in the morning and I say, hey, this, you will get up out of bed and you'll be like, yeah, no problem. Or something which you just do and it doesn't feel like work. What is something that doesn't feel like work to you, but others might think, oh, I have no clue how he does it or... He's spending so many hours on it and he's not getting tired of doing it. Yeah, I think the biggest part is for me is working with, with people and mm. obviously in the, the coaching and mentoring space. So I get, I'm, I'm having loads of conversation with different people across the organization, across countries around, hey, 
sometimes I get a question like, oh, I have this, this challenge, what, what would you do? Yeah. And then sitting with somebody and thinking through the problem, but also what the potential strategy would be to, to resolve that. Yeah. For me, that's, that, that's great because I get to learn something about the person, the context, etc. So I get to feed my own curiosity. Yeah. And at the same time, I can make a bit of an impact by, by helping think through people's options and what they can do. Yeah. So, so that's something that I've got pretty much endless energy for. And, and well, I've never had a call at <laughs> two o'clock at night, although, uh, although sometimes you get somebody in a very different time zone. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you just make some time to, to hash things out and to work them through. Yeah. Are there any personal projects or hobbies you're pursuing right now? Loads. I, 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 I don't have like one big hobby. Okay. I, I just do projects. Um, so a big thing uh, we did last year was uh, we bought a house and we completely renovated it. Fun. Um, I'm still dealing with some of the, the final the final bits there. Yeah. Um, I, I like fixing stuff. So I bought this uh, this crappy old uh, tandem bike from the 70s that I need okay. to uh, completely overhaul. That's, uh, that's a fun project. Um, I'm doing a course on business writing at the moment, so yeah. I th there's plenty of things to to keep me to keep me busy and to keep my mind active yeah. for sure. And uh, what do you see yourself um, for yourself in the future? Um, you've been in this industry 15 years now. Um, maybe you want to stay here. Um, maybe even staying within this company, um, you've tried different roles. But do you have an idea of kind of where you're headed, or take it as it comes? I'm I'm very easygoing. I I know that. Well, there are people that say, "Oh, you need to have like a point in the horizon what yeah. you're working towards." I'm I'm much more opportunistic, and for me, it's more about the process. Okay. Um, and as long as I'm enjoying what I what I'm doing, as long as I'm interacting with people that uh, that inspire me, hey, I'm in, I'm in a pretty good place. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, time time will tell. I'm I'm open to opportunities in in any space, and you know, the world is so big, it's so broad. Yeah. Um, there's loads to do and right now I think energy transition makes the oil and gas industry or the energy industry one of the most fascinating places where you as a person can have a real real impact yeah. as well so from that perspective the industry the energy industry is an extremely interesting space to be right now because it's at the forefront of say both our challenges but also potential solutions yeah Absolutely. And that makes it, uh, of course, quite appealing. Great. Um, let's do a podcast quick fire round. Um, so I'm going to say a word um, and just tell me the first word or maybe a sentence that comes to mind. Yeah. Communication. Well, the first thing that came to mind is strength. <laughs> strength. Yeah. Okay. Diversity. Absolutely necessary. Success. Great. Transformation. Needed. Data. Fundamental. Failure. Good. People. Family. Machines. Annoying at times. Teamwork. Cherry on the cake. Energy. Progress. AI. Epic acronym. Health. Vegetables. Family. A warm fuzzy blanket. Podcasts. Fun. 
Great. Um, and then how I like to wrap it up is we ask our guests for recommendations. So that can be a book you recently read, an article, uh, a newspaper, a podcast, um, something that you would like to share with people which really caught your attention. Yeah, give me a minute to, uh, yeah, go to ahead. think. I read a book on stupidity Interesting. Uh, recently. I, I forgot the name and the author, but it, it was quite a good book to... That actually, uh, actually explains or tries to analyze how how why stupidity exists in the world and how come so there's such smart people that seem to make very foolish decisions. The psychology of stupidity. It can be. Yeah, yeah. Or surrounded by idiots, maybe it could be that one. Yeah, but I think it's a it's a it's a great theme because sometimes you think how how on earth can this be and how do we get into this situation? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and the book is quite insightful there. Great. Okay, I will look it up. Hey, uh, Stephen, thanks a lot. Um, it was a pleasure listening to your story and learning from, from you. Thank you. Um, and I hope you enjoyed. I did. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. That was Stephen Janssen, the head of IT Strategic Partnerships at Shell. You're listening to the Portera Connect podcast. I'm Walid Saraj. 